Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, the amazing, the one and only, Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? What is up, Leslie? Dodgers, magic number, nine. It's under ten. And we're staring down the barrel of a long weekend, so that's always a plus. I'm excited, Dan. Well, it's been a busy week, lots of news coming out before the Labor Day holiday. Let's dive right in and start up with headlines. Some of this is dating back to the end of last week. It's just been a busy full week since we last talked. Yeah. Well, first up, Showtime is teaming with Viola Davis to develop an anthology called First Ladies. The first season will focus on Eleanor Roosevelt, Betty Ford, and Michelle Obama with the How to Get Away with Murder star set to play the latter and exec produce. Should the project, of course, move forward, it's in development at the network. Modern Family star Sarah Hyland is teaming with the Big Six screenwriter Emily Gordon for a multi-camera comedy inspired by both of their lives, which could impact a potential Modern Family spinoff about Haley and Dylan. That's not really a thing yet, but it's a thing that's... Is it a thing that we want? I mean, I would watch that, but it's also, you know, Modern Family is an important show for that network and continuing it would make a lot of sense. I wouldn't not watch it, but honestly, as long as it's not a spinoff about... The little kid Joe. I'm no, it's happy. Haley and Dylan. I understand as, what the spinoff would be. I'm just not sure if I'm necessarily excited for it, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's just nothing is has been talked about there. It just you know, it's something that obviously a lot of people have mentioned as as in a potential, and it's just it's literally right there. It's sitting on the table waiting for them to actually write it and do it. I so. am I am much more excited about the next piece of headline news. Yes. In casting news, Gilmore Girls favorite and Parenthood alum Lauren Graham is headed back to NBC and has booked a series regular role on Jane Levy-led mid-season dramedy Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. That was already the mid-season show that I was looking forward to most. This only helps. And one of these days, I will eventually figure out what the show's actual title is. Yeah, that's not not the best title. In showrunner changes, the Goldbergs, no relation, will see longtime exec producers Chris Bishop and Alex Barno take over for creator Adam F. Goldberg. The changes, of course, follow spinoff Schooled, also getting a new showrunner, as Goldberg is focused on development after moving his overall deal from Sony to ABC Studios. But don't worry, he does contribute stories to both shows as they are drawn from his his childhood. I was not worried. I was worried. I love both of those shows. All but... I want is the contri- continued adventures of Ruben Amaro Jr., that's fair fair request. In new series orders and renewals, Hulu has picked up comedy Woke about the life of cartoonist Keith Knight and starring new girl grad Lamorne Morris. And Comedy Central is bringing back Drunk History and Southside. HBO has renewed Robin Thede's A Black Lady Sketch Show. Thank you very much, HBO. And thank you to favorite TV's top five guest, Robin Thede. Yes, very, very exciting news. HBO has done what BET could not, which is renew a show that people love with Robin Thede. And last but certainly not least, Netflix has confirmed what we've known for months, that they are indeed going to distribute a Breaking Bad movie sequel. It will be called El Camino, and it will of course star Aaron Paul. The streamer debuted a minute of the footage and announced an October 11th premiere date. AMC, which was of course the original home for the Vince Gilligan drama, will air it at a later date. Dan, you're Breaking Bad diehard. Are you excited for this? What did you think of the footage? I'm very curious. Uh, and I'm also curious as to why so many people appear not to have read your story from back in February, where the news that this was going to Netflix already had broken and was very much out there and about there. So whatever. Um, I thought the the teaser, which featured Skinny Pete, was not necessarily all that exciting. I think that the poster is fantastic. I, I love 
the poster. So the combination of a really good poster and basically Vince Gilligan, underlining Vince Gilligan several times there, I'm on board for that. I, I don't think he's going to do anything that is going to destroy this franchise, or at least if he does, I will be pretty much crestfallen. So I hope it's good. Yeah, and this is, of course, the first public confirmation that they are, that this movie does exist. You know, it was filmed and cast with a fake title. Sony, who produced Breaking Bad, had never confirmed this on the record. Netflix didn't confirm when they were, when they originally picked up the movie as a first window distribution in a deal with Sony and AMC, had never confirmed it. So, yeah, people made a big deal of this, and rightfully so. First official confirmation. It was a lot of fun because it was Netflix doing what Netflix does best, which is basically being a steamroller and running over other people's news and other people's big news days. So there was plenty of other stuff happening, and then suddenly everyone stopped talking about the stuff that was happening because they were like, ooh, Breaking Bad spinoff, so... I can't I can't blame Netflix. Well played Netflix. And the same can be true of our first topic this week. Let's talk D23. Number one. Leading off this week, Disney Plus continued its aggressive TV content push during its D23 Expo with all of the announcements. And we'll get into those in a second. Guess what we stopped talking about, Dan? What did we stop talking about? Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars. Oh, God. Okay. Why'd you even bring that back up? Because I... D23 and all the excitement over three new Marvel shows, a Lizzie McGuire show, everything else, it moved the narrative. It moved the narrative basically very far elsewhere. But I can still be upset about Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars if you want. I'm Absolutely. sure I have another rant in me if we if we need it. Otherwise, let's move on to what was actually announced at D23. Yes. Um, of course, Disney Plus is set to launch November 12th, and it has now added three more live-action Marvel dramas. Miss Marvel, She-Hulk, and Moon Knight. We have no writers or additional details on those, but the flurry of announcements included Hilary Duff reprising her role as Lizzie McGuire in a new live-action sequel from the original creator. As if that wasn't enough, Disney Plus confirmed that Ewan McGregor will reprise his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi in another Star Wars Disney show for Disney Plus. That begins production in 2020. The Muppets are coming back with a short-form interview series, which sounds fun. And Forky from Toy Story 3 is also getting a, a short-form series on Disney Plus. All three Marvel series will be part of the Phase 4 of Marvel, which includes Disney Plus shows Falcon and Winter Soldier, WandaVision, Loki, the animated What If, which the footage at, at D23 had everyone talking, Hawkeye, then, of course, Miss Marvel, Moon Knight, and She-Hulk. Like, it, it just—and then there were two big pieces of, that, of news that came from D23 that really were felt underplayed and undercovered because there was so much other bigger news. It's, oh, by the way, all these episodes are going to stream weekly. So you get one episode a week. There's no binging, which— you know, breathe a sigh of relief for critics and reporters everywhere. Don't do me any good. I hope they're going to send me more than one episode to watch. So no sighs of relief. In fact, when did I last breathe a sigh of relief, Leslie? 1992. What was 1992? I don't know. I no, just I was just starting high school. There's no way I was. I was I just was... graduating high school, Dan. We're not that different in age, Leslie. <laughs> OK, but look, and the other the other thing, too, is that Disney's entire library, the, all of the movies the animated movies from the vault all the beloved features from your childhood lady from my, for me lady in the tramp cinderella snow white all of these great classics are now going to be out of the vault and streaming on disney plus it's just one killer announcement after another for except as hollywood reporter has been reporting since april except for song of the south which will not be there and apparently the version of dumbo that will be available will not feature the crows 
I I'm a little perplexed. I, I feel mean, it's a family friendly platform. It is. But I feel like Warner Brothers and Warner Animation did a tremendous job with the disclosure and disclaimer that they put ahead of some of their more dated Warner Brothers content saying, basically, this is a product of a different time. This does not represent the values of Warner Brothers animation today. But denying that it was a thing that existed would be ridiculous. I think Disney should have done something very, very, very similar to both Song of the South and Dumbo to make it clear that this is a part of the brand and a part of what the brand has represented over the years. And if things are, well, basically blatantly racist, yes, they are, but they exist. Yeah. And, you know, basically everything that we've seen from Disney Plus so far, it's just one mammoth announcement after another. They released the first trailer for The Mandalorian, the new Star Wars series from Jon Favreau. There's footage from the new High School Musical show, which has a title that I won't even try to, to deal with here. High School Musical, the musical, the show, the musical, this musical, the show. Mixedish, mi- mixedish, mixedish, mixedish. Exactly. Yeah, it's not not the best title. But, you know, when we talk about Disney Plus, the f- only thing that comes to mind aside from the fact that yes i've already signed up for this platform because it's literally got everything that my my family will loves and will want to watch you know it makes me think of apple because there's all these high profile programs morning show we've seen footage of the dickinson teaser trailer was like 90 seconds or something like that was released this week but we have no launch date we don't know if episodes are going to be released weekly or all at once we don't know how much it's going to cost all we know is coming this fall and meanwhile, Disney Plus is launching November 12th at seven bucks a month with a crap ton of Marvel and a crap ton of Star Wars and all the animated movies from the vault and Pixar and Nat Geo. And it just keeps coming. No, we, we've talked about this enough different times at this point, and it remains true that the rollout that Disney is doing on this is a professional rollout, whereas whatever Apple is doing is a, we're Apple, we don't need to do a professional rollout. To compare the 90-second teaser trailer for Dickinson, which basically had people giggling at the attempt to either Knight's Tale or Marie Antoinette, Emily Dickinson's life story in somewhat comical form it looks like or maybe not who knows i don't know i like Haley steinfeld I think i'm she's... halfway through the script and i can't tell if it's a drama or comedy well and there's like you know that's probably an approach because i don't know that anyone was necessarily thinking that emily dickinson's life story was a sizzle worthy television show without some augmentation and flexibility with tone but anyway yes to to compare the things that disney plus did to apple's occasional half-hearted rolling out of a teaser trailer with no premiere dates is a little bit comical uh the mandalorian trailer looked pretty good uh and definitely they pandered effectively to the star wars fan base by having the only line of dialogue delivered by uh, Werner herzog so heaven knows that's going to get the people in the door it looked relatively decent. All of the buzz about all of these Marvel shows, it's a little bit terrifying, actually. Really, the whole thing is, its this is all at this point terrifying to me because every time anything like this happens, it just means more stuff to review. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. But I mean, look, there's a special discount for people who are at D23 and an early you know, I, I guess we're, we're going to call it the early early mouse discount. It's a bad Disney pun, but you can get a three year subscription for one hundred and forty bucks. That's less than four dollars a month for. I mean, I signed up at that rate. That's kind of it, it's a bargain when you think of even if I would pay that just for the original library, just for the Disney movies. 
and many people have in the form of physical media, which apparently is no longer a thing human beings are allowed to have or encouraged to have. And you should throw a bonfire putting all of your DVDs on it. Or alternatively, you should... But like, you couldn't even buy <laughs> DVDs for some of these movies. You know, when my nieces were born, my wife and I went to get a lot of the original animated Disney movies, the ones that we grew up watching together. And, and you can't buy them. Or they're, you know, 30 or 50 bucks used at Amoeba. And... It's all because of the Disney vault. And here's here's your solution. And it's four dollars a month. No, I believe it's a pretty safe bet that a lot of people are going to need to have I mean, this there particular were, thing. There were lines at, at multiple kiosks at D23. You could see pictures all over Twitter for people waiting in line to sign up for this platform, which doesn't launch for another two months. I am looking forward to and curious, except again for the, the wariness. The, the whole vault thing, it's a bunch of stuff I will never have time to watch, but... I am I am here for all of the content and it appears that they're doing stuff in the right way here. And so once again, they just continue to be winners, as it were. Yeah. And we'll get into more of uh, the winners from this summer in one of our upcoming segments. Number two. Batting second. Live from New York. It's not Leslie Jones. That's right. SNL regular Leslie Jones is departing NBC's late night sketch show following a five season run. Dan, will you miss Leslie Jones? I'll miss a lot of what she did. I think I'll probably mostly miss her when she was basically being herself on Weekend Update. I think that was the thing that she did best. And I think we've sort of seen in her Twitter feed and all of that, that that is that's who she is. That is who she is and what she does. And I think she's quite wonderful at it. I don't think she was ever entirely comfortable as a sketch performer. It wasn't like she was a an incredible impersonator or anything of that nature. So I don't think the show is going to miss her necessarily as a sketch performer, but I definitely think that her voice will be missing in Weekend Update for sure. Absolutely. That was always my favorite part when she would kind of come in and just be herself and really just kind of liven up something, whether it be a monologue or Weekend Update. But Sources say that Jones opted to exit her deal early so she could focus on her burgeoning film career and her upcoming Netflix comedy special. At the same time, Kate McKinnon, who has won two comedy actress Emmys for her work on the Lorne Michaels comedy, has signed on to return for another season. So one big loss, but one key member staying. One key member staying, though, I really feel as if Kate McKinnon probably has outgrown the show and probably had outgrown the show several years ago. And probably if you'd asked her a couple of years ago, she would have been skeptical that she would have lasted this long. I think that it's that she's probably I don't want to say overstayed, but she's stayed beyond what the traditional shelf life might have been. I think that we're seeing actually a lot of that with Saturday Night Live is people making it into a longer range career plan. Look at Kenan Thompson, obviously. Who has two other shows on NBC. And I think that's the key difference is that maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, basically, if you were doing Saturday Night Live, that meant that you had the time to do a movie during your summer hiatus and that was it. Whereas, as we saw with A.D. Bryant and Shrill, for example, it's entirely possible to do Saturday Night Live and really do a full other TV show and maybe duck into a couple movies. You can have a career that's a fuller career while still using Saturday Night Live as your foundation. And I think that a lot of people are realizing that you don't necessarily need to outgrow Saturday Night Live in a way that you always used to. 
Yeah, and Keenan has said he wants to be on this as long as possible, which is he's hosting an unscripted show for NBC. He's got a, a, com- a live action comedy that he's starring in that's also produced by Lauren Michaels coming up. And I think that's the rumor on that is that it's slated to air after the Olympics next summer. I mean, but look, it's this is a show that is starting to cycle through a lot more cast members a lot quicker than we've seen, in, you know, historically on. This so show. it goes. Bo- so I guess it goes both ways then by that standard. Uh, no, I, I think it's I think it will be interesting to see how they balance the other things that Keenan is doing. And Kate McKinnon, obviously, I don't think she's got a Hulu show coming too. I'm definitely looking forward to that Hulu thing. I I think the show is not really prepared to figure out how to deal with life without Kate McKinnon at this point. I think if you were to take Kate McKinnon out of that equation, Saturday Night Live would kind of crumble. Uh, Leslie Jones is a different kind of loss for the show. And so keeping Kate McKinnon around allows them to keep that stability and allows them to basically have a person capable of playing every single member of the presidential cabinet apparently so yeah i don't i don't know what the show would do without her i'm fairly sure what she would do without the show so this is this is better for snl than necessarily it is for kate mckinnon yeah and we'll wait to see if snl is going to add any new cast members to kind of help uh, fill the void created by leslie jones's departure those announcements usually come very close to when it premieres SNL returns for season 45 September 28th with host Woody Harrelson and musical guest Billie Eilish, followed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Taylor Swift, and then David Harbour and Kristen Stewart, and holy crap, Eddie Murphy's coming back to SNL. Oh, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules! Stop the presses. Yeah, well, not just, actually, I would say more start the presses because SNL made this very, very unusual step of announcing the first couple hosts and then one person for November, Kristen Stewart, who has been a very successful host on the show in the past, and then they made sure that everyone knew, stick around until December because freaking Eddie Murphy is coming back to host the show for the first time. Yeah, it's the since, Christmas episode. Since 1984. And the estrangement between Eddie Murphy and the show that gave him his start has been such a an ongoing narrative for decades now and bringing in such wonderful moments as David Spade making fun of him and whatnot. We understand the reasons why they had the split they had. I'm going to believe Eddie Murphy is hosting Saturday Night Live when he gets out there on that stage and is doing his monologue. But it it actually is something which is genuinely historic and notable. Yeah, that that's going to be amazing. I mean, he had he did have a short appearance on the 40th anniversary special a couple of years ago. But this is a very, very notable booking for them. But on the other hand, as great as that is, honestly, I'm much more looking forward to the Phoebe Waller-Bridge Taylor Swift episode that that to me is like just a great episode of Saturday Night Live. So I hope it I hope it lives up to what it ought to live up to. And also by that point, maybe Phoebe Waller-Bridge will have several Emmys from Fleabag because she certainly deserves to. Yeah, well, that feels like a good point to move on. Up third this week, it's Labor Day weekend and the official end of summer. With that, let's take a look back at the TV winners and losers from the past few months. Number three. As we said earlier in the show, Disney Plus, clear winner, Dan. That's, I mean, look, we've we've talked extensively about what a big swing they're taking and how they're doing everything right ahead of their November launch. But let's look at another streamer, Netflix. Dan, where does Netflix rate on your summer winners and losers? Yeah, I think Netflix is a loser, not like a disastrous loser. I am not currently worried about Netflix's ability to go through its day-to-day life and to continue to make money. But if you look at the summer that Netflix has on a purely ephemeral and big picture level, basically they had this terrain 
to some degree all to themselves. And yes, Amazon has done good things and won awards and all of that, and Hulu also. But Hulu and Amazon's executives both have gone on and on emphasizing that they're not in the exact same business as Netflix is. So Netflix has kind of had its business all to itself. And the amount of the thunder that Disney Plus and to a much lesser degree, because it's still kind of hypothetical HBO Max, have provided and stolen, it's significant. And so then you've also had a run of cancellations that have made some viewers, I would say, a little bit gun shy when it comes to committing so the oa tuca and birdie she's got to have it chambers and my favorite designated survivor which we're gonna say it one last time and pour one out for for old designated survivor five showrunners two networks two studios three seasons and one korean adaptation that we didn't even discuss so that was bad planning on our part so yeah so all of those cancellations have kind of jeopardized netflix's ability to call itself kind of the the savior of the little show and all of that and then you've had a bunch of other kind of random negative things i don't think it was a spectacularly good look the way they kind of caved on both uh, stranger things and 13 reasons why in terms of advocacy groups asking them to change things like the smoking, smoking in and Stranger Things and to basically trim the suicide scene from the first season of 13 Reasons Why. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done those things. It just becomes more of a question of why were they not concerned about those things in the first place? Why did it take two plus years before 13 Reasons Why became an issue? I think they got a you know, big buzz rush out of the first week of Stranger Things, and they boasted about it. When was the last time you heard anyone talking about the third season of Stranger Things? I don't weeks. remember. It's been weeks. Orange is the New Black, a prestige landmark show for them. Which, according to Netflix execs, is their most watched original show. Came, had a week or so of conversation, and I haven't heard much conversation about that, which is to some degree the business model that they've chosen, but it's where they are. Yeah. For me, I'm going to say sci-fi, probably a, a loser here. They canceled Krypton and Deadly Class and Happy and the Lobo spinoff that they were prepping out of Krypton is won't go forward there, although it's being shopped elsewhere. So what's left? You've got The Magicians, The Purge. Resident Alien, some Canadian imports, Van Helsing and, and the beloved Winona Earp, a couple of weird things in development, Cypher, future cult classic from Lorne Michaels and a Chucky show. I mean, I don't know what the future of that network is because their big bet was was to lean hard into scripted shows that are really putting the science fiction back in sci-fi. And you've got a couple of big like Krypton. It's a, it's a Superman prequel. And that didn't work. Deadly Class, based on the beloved graphic novel, didn't work. Happy, same thing. And it's just not the best look the way that sci-fi keeps basically rebranding itself every year or two. And one minute they're like, oh, we're getting back to sci-fi and space, but we can't make ex the Expanse work. You know, we're gonna, now we're going to do graphic novels and they can't make Deadly Class and Happy work. With big comic creators attached, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is a moment of ongoing uncertainty for sci-fi and I feel like it's now been a couple of years of this so all we can do is kind of raise our eyebrows and go okay what is what is that one gonna be yeah i'm gonna do a winner next dan pose one of my favorite shows and billy porter i mean look billy porter has become a style icon to say the least season two of pose cut through the clutter a lot it was nominated for emmys it's been just everywhere this summer and that, that's not a bad thing 
No, the, the counterpoint would be that FX had an underwhelming showing at the Emmys or Emmy nominations, rather. They could end up being perfectly happy with the Emmy performance. But look, they knew it was going to be an off year. Uh, they did. And John Landgraf has been very candid about the various different shows that weren't in cycle that were last year that got all the recognition, whether it was something like Fargo or the Americans or Atlanta, et cetera. So it just happened they didn't have them this year. But still, it was a, it was a statistically a down year. They also said goodbye to the beloved baskets. So that's a little bit sad, but that was never a major part of their brand. It was just a show that a handful of people loved. So... So that's my negative point on that. Still probably FX is is fine. Uh, let's stay with another winner. I think HBO has to be considered a winner. Once again, back at the top of the Emmy nomination. With a massive heap. lead. And then they've had a bunch of, I would say, almost surprising shows to gain traction, given that all anyone was talking about four months ago was, oh, what are they going to do without Game of Thrones and without Veep? Well, I think that Chernobyl was a surprise and opened up the scripted window on Monday. I think that Succession continues to only gain buzz and to really be one of the best shows on TV. So, yeah, it, it, big summer, I would say, for HBO. Bore on the floor! Bore on the floor! Too soon? <laughs> and that's before we get into things like Euphoria, which had yes. a lot of people talking. And then also, in addition to expanding to Mondays with Scripted, They've had some real success with Friday night, late night type shows with uh, with a Black Lady sketch show and Los Espookies. Say it again, Dan. I know you want to. Los Espookies. And, you know, on the comedy side, they, they gave two of their big hits or quote unquote hits. You know, Ballers is one of their most watched comedies. They announced final season in advance, letting the viewers know that this is what was coming. And they did the same thing for, for divorce. So they gave proper farewells to shows with important stars and producers attached. So Sarah Jessica Parker and Dwayne The Rock Johnson yeah, saying giving treating them properly. That's a big deal in this era, which unfortunately makes Senator Elizabeth Warren a loser in terms of summer TV. But She's got other things happening. All right, Dan, let's go to the lightning round here. Hulu, what do you think? Winner or loser? Well, uh, Handmaid's Tale really did not have the same conversation that it had in its first two seasons, but still had that really surprising off-cycle uh, dozen or so Emmy nominations. So probably not a total loss. Four Weddings and a Funeral, not really in the conversation. And, and that Veronica Mars <laughs> rollout, which we're going to use the word divisive, even though I think that was just a, a really bad miscalculation it it was something that took what ought to have been a celebratory moment and made it into a, a divisive and confusing and conflicted moment as if the finale of that season was not going to do that anyway uh so what you got to say about broadcast tv anything at all did broadcast tv even exist this summer is love island still on love island is not still on but it will be back next summer uh Big Brother, which continues to be a huge success for CBS, just chugs along, though this season was so dismal. I stopped watching roughly at the halfway point. I've heard things have gotten a tiny bit better lately, but come on. And, you know, the ABC still has all of its game shows, which work every summer. But, you know, what the summer was missing on the broadcast side was one of those big under the dome like bets. And, you know, one of the reasons we're not seeing the those big expensive scripted shows happening in the summer is, well, those were mostly financed through deals with Netflix for second window. And now none of the none of these studios want to sell to Netflix anymore because they're all launching streaming services of their own. So what happens here? You get unscripted in the summer or low budget Canadian shows in the summer or low budget scripted shows from foreign distributors, you know, that, that you, you board as a co-production. It just means that there's fewer big swings in the summer on the scripted side. It's just, 
it, it's just a, a keeping the lights on on broadcast at least yeah. because another winner Spe- would specifically on broadcast uh, specifically on broadcast another winner would i would say pretty clearly be the the boys on amazon it was renewed before it premiered and i've heard a pretty fair amount of buzz about it i i don't think it's all that good i think it's a kind of sour show that has moments that really work but i know a lot of people who love it so whatever else amazon is up to and we'll see on carnival row and all that but yes the boys feels like a winner what else you got paramount network's yellowstone is a big ratings hit and it's also serving as the model for their scripted development so they're looking for big broad pr- procedurals with strong characters and big name actors they've got another show with michael chiklis attached they're looking to replicate that success. That's a winner. Um, loser, I'm going to say YouTube, continues to retreat from scripted on becoming a god in Central Florida, moved to Showtime. Now they're taking the paywall down for Cobra Kai. I think they've got maybe one or two other scripted shows left. But I mean, it's just it's just a question of when, like, where else is Cobra Kai going to go? You know, what does YouTube have to entice Sony to keep that show on that platform? Somebody else would want Cobra Kai uh, if it became a free agent. And Showtime certainly has benefited from on becoming a god in Central Florida going rogue, as it were. I would say sketch shows have been a winner. Uh, Alternatino, a Black Lady sketch show, and Sherman's Showcase were among the better and better received shows of the summer, all three of them. So that's definitely a thing. And then as a transition point, I would say one of the big winners of the summer has been uh, Own, because Queen Sugar remains a success both critically and audience-wise. Ambitions is a show that does very well. And David Makes Man got some of the network's best ever reviews. We call that a transition. That brings us to our next segment. Number four. Up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment. This week, we're thrilled to welcome Dee Harris Lawrence, the showrunner of David Makes Man on OWN. Welcome, welcome Dee. Dee. Hello. How are you guys? So this is Dee's first stint as a showrunner, but I, she's had a wildly varied career that started with New York Undercover and has included, and try finding the through line on some of these, <laughs> Detroit 187, Zero Hour, Zoo, Shots Fired, and Unsolved, The Murder of Tupac and Biggie Smalls. So yes. wildly varied. <laughs> yes. So, okay, for David Makes Man, I can give kind of the fun pitch of it, which mm-hmm. is sort of, it's it's kind of goodwill hunting in Florida. It's about mm-hmm. a teenage genius trying to get his family out of a bad economic situation. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the show that... Terrell Alvin McCraney wrote. Mm-hmm. So when you're kind of working on this, what is the challenge of balancing the kind of elevator pitch, the the juicy, catchy logline of the show with the actual poetic show that it really is? It's interesting because it has been very hard to distill it to, you know, just the juicy, pitchy, catchy, because there's so many different elements to it, right? I mean, it is about a 14-year-old who hugs between his community that's filled with you know, drug dealers. Um, they're living in, you know, what people would consider poverty, but the lower socioeconomic, you know, planes. And then there's the part where he goes off to trying, you know, where he's at the magnet, magnet school and he's trying to get into a prep school where he's one of like only a couple of uh, a few black kids in a class in his magnet class. But then you have magical realism. But then you have the universe of all the different char- various characters that he has to deal with when he's going around in, um, in his world. So we have been trying very hard to distill it. I think probably the closest I got to was The Wire Meets Parenthood, and that really doesn't do it justice even then. <laughs> so still, we've been still just a like, great combo, though. Yeah, yeah, right? It is a show about that's just un- 
Felicia Rashad said this the other day. It is unapologetically human. We've been saying unapologetically black, but it's unapologetically human. Where you are, we're putting in, you into a world with people that are normally ignored, letting you see how they think, how they go around the world, how they traverse, you know? And it's, it's really cool and exciting and using these characters and basically filling them out and doing it in such a visually stunning way. Yeah. Well, let's start with how you got, you know, how you joined the show. I mean, this was announced, I cover development here for THR. And mm -hmm. when this was announced two years ago, Mike Kelly from Revenge yes. was attached to this. Mm -hmm. um, and he still is. And so how did you board the project? And, and, you know, this is, look, it's your first time show running. Yes. So how did, can you walk us through that experience? Yeah, okay. The, how that came um, basically, uh, Melissa, Loy, and Mike Kelly, she's uh, his partner, producing partner. They were, I, I guess with Terrell Alvin McCraney at the very beginning when they went around to pitch. And then Michael B. Jordan came on board with them. They figured out the pitch. I think it w the show was with HBO for a second. And then finally they sold it to OWN, infamously from Oprah listening to the pitch or getting Oprah to listen to the pitch. They started doing meetings with uh, various showrunners. I was on Unsolved at the time. And I was really upset because I was going, okay, I want to be in on this. I read the script. They sent it to me. And I'm like, I am this character. I know this character. And finally, I got so crazy busy. I thought, okay, I can't do it. At the time, they wanted me to meet. And I had to wait until after Christmas. So I'm like, okay, if you guys can wait till after Christmas, I'll be right there. And if you can't, I totally understand. I'll be devastated, but I'll understand. And lo and behold, they gave me a call at the beginning of January and said, we want you to come in. And I basically met with Terrell, Melissa, and Mike. And Terrell, who claims to be very shy until you get to know him. He is shy, though. We just kind of just started, like, vibing, you know. And uh, as we started talking about the script and everything. And two weeks later, I found that I was going to be a showrunner for the very first time, which was awesome. And I remember just sitting at my desk, just kind of like looking ahead, because someone had asked me, I mean, I've been, been in this business for a minute. And they're like, oh, so why have you show ran? I'm like, well, that's not a question for me. That's the question for everybody else. Because <laughs> I've been show running in my head all, you know, up until this time. But I sat there and I thought, because I've been waiting for this show. Exactly. That's that. a great answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, going with what you were saying about sort of you seeing yourself in the main character, what did you see in yourself? David, who uses his imagination to get through his own neighborhood, to deal with his anxieties. I was a huge daydreamer as a kid. I was always like conjuring up different ideas. I was a big reader. So both of those together, my daydreams were very visual, <laughs> very vivid. And I could relate to David and how he, you know, would go through his, you know, neighborhood and community. And then I was bused to, um, in LA to Palisades High. So when I would come back to the community, it would be like, I told one person one time that I was going to Pally High and I got called a bitch. And I'm like, never again, never again. So um, you learn to basically code switch. You learn to put on your mask. You learn to, and as a female, as I told Terrell, there's a whole nother element to it as a female that you have to deal with. The eyes that are on you when you're going through the different you know, neighborhoods. So I was able to relate to David in that way. Now, the script is so, as you say, magical realist, mm -hmm. and Terrell comes from a background that is not an episodic TV background. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a playwriting background yeah. and then Moonlight. When you saw the initial script, what was your reaction in terms of, okay, what's it going to take to make this into a weekly TV show? 
It's funny because I thought of it immediately as a 10 hour film. And that's the way I came to it. I told him, I'm like, I do not want to do this as a regular episodic. I said, if we can talk them through, and we basically the way I approached it was, let's just go in and pitch out the entire arc of the 10 episode film and see how they feel. Because I, I don't want to go in and give them story docs. I don't want to do any of that. So we can get them there, then they can see it the way we see it. And we did it to the studio. They loved it. And we did it to um, Oprah and own the own execs, and they loved it as well. So I kind of went into it knowing that it wasn't going to be a normal episodic piece of television. What we ended up collaborating on, and thank goodness we were of like minds, that the visuals and the imagination and all of that, the metaphors, were going to be used by using colors, by using the music, by using um, all of these different things to tell the story that you know people can't just distill it down to a coming of age story because it's so much more. Yeah, I'm more interested in, in you know from the development perspective. There's so many, so much TV, like 500 scripted shows this year. It'll probably top that next mm -hmm. year. But one of the benefits of peak TV is the opportunity to take risks yes. on shows like this that mm -hmm. wouldn't normally, I don't even think maybe, you know, I don't know if the show would have been made five years ago or 10 years it ago. It probably would not have. Um, and the benefit, one of the benefits too is opening doors for new showrunners. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the experience of being on a show like this and the opportunities that peak TV affords? And you're right. The opportunities that Peak TV affords right now is that there are more voices that are getting out there, which is fantastic. Because I think we were getting a little bit tired of the same voices in a way. <laughs> you know, we're churning out similar television. So now we have like, I can't even, I'm, I'm upset because I can't see some, <laughs> I can't see a lot of the shows that are out now. And show running this show, what was fantastic and a challenge was finding the right pieces because when you have 500 you know, shows on the air, it is getting harder and harder to find the pieces that you want to come on board. Um, I know writers I wanted very, and directors, et cetera. Exactly, as writers and directors. And everybody, thank goodness, a lot of people are working. And even people who did not get a chance to work all the time are now working. So it was really a, you know, going out there and finding even you know, newer voices. I think. Like we have, we have someone like John Strauss who has done, I mean, his first, not, I don't know if it was his first movie, but he co-wrote um, There's Something About Mary, you know, and that, I mean, he's been doing television recently, but then you have staff writers that we just brought on board who are from Miami, who are fantastic, who wrote the first, after the pilot, the first two episodes with Terrell to be able to mold those sort of voices onto the television scape. And I told them in the beginning, I'm like, look, this is not gonna be all every show that you, you're on after this. This is basically, um, I wanted to do a show that was very, uh, a, a writer's room that was very collaborative, very diverse. Um, people have a say, it's a safe room. I said every show, hopefully from you know here on out, it'll be like that, but it's not. It's not always going to be this. So I'm happy that I gave them at least what it can be. So as they go forth, they'll always be seeking that. And when they have their own show, they can also hopefully, you know, run it the way that I like to run it. But as far as being the showrunner of the show, wow. To be able to be a showrunner of uh, Terrell's show re after reading the script, the challenges was like, okay, how are we going to do all these visuals? <laughs> and getting the director, Michael Francis Williams, to give us all of that and more was wonderful. Gary Gunn, who was our music composer, who has mostly done 
installations for art exhibits. We talked him into coming on board, which was fabulous because sound was a very big thing for Terrell. And that was a very big thing for the character of David and how he hears certain sounds because of something that happened that caused the trauma. So I realized early on that I had to be very organized, had to be very, you know, um, specific in how I went after folk, very specific in how I described the show to people. But everyone who read that script was, they already were on board. They already, you know, wanted to be a part of it. And those who did not, I can't say did not. I don't know if they thought we couldn't pull it off. You know, so it was like, and we were determined that we were going to be able to pull it off. So it's been exciting to see these um, first three episodes come on there. Well, when you're building a show around a young character, there has to be a certain amount of terror in the casting process that you Mm -hmm. simply aren't going to be able to find the person who you can hang an entire show on. Right. How hard was it to find Akili who plays David? It was a process, but it wasn't hard. And we were lucky to get Carmen Cuba, who had cast Stranger Things, that little show. And we were determined to get her. I think we broke the bank to get her. And she gave us, she, I mean, she put the feelers out there and we had a lot of tapes to go through. But what made us hopeful was how much talent, you know, was out there that have not been utilized. So that was actually really nice. After that, we distilled it down to, um, I can't even remember. It was a lot of young boys. And we went from L.A. to Atlanta to New York. So everyone who was around those areas, we, we brought them in. And we basically came away with two Davids and two Sarens and brought them to L.A. And it was interesting because Akili had not done a lot before this. And at the time, he was 15. So, But there was something about him that we, I think Terrell and I both gravitated to. And the other young man was had done a few more things so you could see that he was a better he was a better actor at the time but there was something about Achille um he read in the pilot episode that last sequence when you realize um who his mentor you know really is and I'm still like a little bit weird about saying it even though the show is aired <laughs> but when he, he did that last uh, sequence in his audition and Terrell made him stand up because he was sitting down because he could we could see that he wanted to and that young man went to a place where Terrell had to get up quickly and grab him. And I remember at the time going, that's David. He is a star. Oh, my God. Totally. Totally a star. Yeah. I think one of the harder things about the peak TV landscape, you know, look, there's a, we've discussed all the opportunities that exist in that. Mm-hmm. But the hard part, you know, especially on a show like David Makes Man, where it's a little bit harder to describe in an elevator pitch, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily have a bankable well-known mm-hmm. star who you can throw up on a billboard and people instantly know who that is right. and what to expect. But can you talk a little bit about the challenges of trying to cut through in this landscape when it's a new idea mm-hmm. and a newcomer in the lead role? I think it's the material that speaks for itself. It's been interesting, even though Achille is not a well-known name, the ad and the marketing that was used, people are drawn to it and drawn to him immediately. So we have that. We have um, Felicia Rashad, who plays Dr. Wiztrap, the teacher who teaches him in the Magnet um, School, who has been fantastic with going with us to the film festivals. And we knew probably this was going to be a word-of-mouth show. It was going to be a show where, I mean, Owen has done a great job of getting us into all these different film festivals and television festivals. And the response has been 
amazing. And not only the African-American community, but um, a lot of the various communities at ATX, actually. At one point, I found myself surrounded by close to about, I think it was about 15 students. And not one were African-American. It was, um, you know, Asian, East Indian, white. And but they the uh, pilot resonated with them in a very profound way. And in getting to the point where that they saw they can also tell their stories. They can also see, see their stories and relate to having to take care of their young a sister or brother in trying to get to college and trying to do all these things. So it's a universal language that is told within this community that people may not think that they have something to relate to with all these characters, but when you watch it, you realize that you do. I feel like there's a tiny bit of a challenge, but I do think that we're, um, we're getting out there. And it's been very humbling and very, I've been very appreciative over the response that we've got in the press. Yeah, and the reviews have been spectacular. Yeah, I mean, and I'm very superstitious about reviews, and so is Terrell, so I try not to look at them. But it's been quite overwhelming because you cannot ignore how people have, how it's touched people. And in even the interviews that we had with people, how they would get even emotional sometimes in, in interviewing us and when we talked about it. So I'm hoping that continues and people not thinking that is one thing and giving it a chance to see that is so much more. Well, with the show and with Queen Sugar and with a few other shows, Owen has really accumulated a stable of really good prestige TV shows that I don't feel like necessarily people are talking about maybe as much as they could or should be. Mm -hmm. What do you feel like they're doing right? What do you feel like they're nurturing in the voices that they're bringing in? They're nurturing voices and they're seeing people that they haven't seen on television before with very nuanced characters, very... Even though a lot of the themes are universal, it's still very nuanced because we haven't seen... Um, like with for Queen Sugar, a you know a um, family set in New Orleans, who their father was had a huge uh, sugarcane plantation. Here we have you know as far as David makes man in the you know a family, you know led by a single mother. We haven't seen those people on on stage before, so I think the conversations that is generating Greenleaf. I I remember thinking for a very long time. I'm like, why are they not doing a show about the black church? I mean, oh my God, the drama that goes on with the black church. They really need to be doing a show about that. It's now again in peak television. We're able to finally get the space to be able to tell those. And OWN has been such a home in order to uh, cultivate those voices. I think it's been a major thing. And I think five years from now, when looking back on this, I think people will see that this was kind of like the beginning, you know, of own, um, that it's just scratching the surface of where it's about to blossom to, with all of us getting out there and, and being recognized that we are, you know, alike in a lot of ways, but we're also the same in a lot of ways. Yeah. What have you heard from own about the future of David Makes Man? I mean, the reviews, like we've said, have been really strong. But is this a show that you hope goes to five, ten seasons? Oh, I certainly hope so. I mean, we have, is, Terrell has like had a very specific way of how he wants to tell the show. And I'm so excited to be able to do that. I'm, we're hoping, waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting just like with everybody else. I'm like, okay, can we please get to go ahead soon? So, yes. I mean, we have probably, I think right now, a five-year plan, but it easily can go ten years. The universal of characters even though it's centered around David, everybody around him, you will come to know and understand as you kind of go along. So it can go in so many different ways, which is really exciting. And we've talked about it a bit. The 
sort of A-list producers on this, how much is Oprah around? How much is Michael B. Jordan around mm-hmm. when you guys are putting this together? It's interesting because uh, Oprah, I, from the beginning, and you know, people were asking us like, oh, does she have any input? She produces. So, you know, from us having the conversations in the beginning about casting, we, uh, Terrell and I had a conversation with her early on about the casting when we distilled it down to certain people, down to uh, the production design. We did a whole thing that was laid out for her. So there were conversations over the phone. She read the scripts as we, they came through, and she watched the cuts. It is very exciting when you get an email in your inbox and you see Oprah's, you know, they've told she has a response. So, and very early on, even after our first table read, she had a very um, distinct reaction to the table read because everybody brought their A game to that table read and reading the pilot. And she was just saying how she hopes and she saw that this show could possibly be a legacy show and how we're like presenting it. Everybody, even Orlando, did such a phenomenal job considering they did not know who these people, a lot of the crew, but everybody went to it in such a, with such heart in the show and, and felt that it was important from the beginning. Um, Michael B. Jordan, also in the very beginning with marketing. He was right there with Terrell when they were pitching the show. He was with us at Sundance. Also, his company has been very, so everybody has had, and Mike Kelly and Melissa, we've had such a stake in the show and, um, that I haven't had in a very long time. The way I approach shows, I'm all in. This show has basically, it was, I'm all in and even more. <laughs> you know, and, and seeing people like Michael B. Jordan and Miss um, Winfrey and Mike Kelly and Melissa be all in as well has just propelled us even more. Do you ever get over the starstruck aspect of getting an email from Miss Winfrey, as you <laughs> said? <laughs> I know, I'm such a Southern girl. Miss um, Winfrey. Um, I do. And, <laughs> and, you know, because I'm also going through the, you know, it's like, okay, we got to do this, we got to do that, we got to do this, you know. So it's all in my head, but then I sit back. I think about a friend of mine said, just like, just take it all in. Of what you're doing because you know we're all trying to do the same thing at the same time but at the end of the day it's still you know oprah excellent well our guest this week has been d harris lawrence of david makes man which airs on wednesday nights on own thanks so much for chatting with us today thank Steve. you so much for having me number five as usual we wrap things up with the critics corner this week's new arrivals include the dark crystal on netflix mayans on fx greenleaf on own Hulu's The Wu-Tang Clan, An American Saga, and Carnival Row on Amazon. And for more on Carnival Row, be sure to check out Josh Wiggler's series regular, which this week features Carnival Row showrunner Mark Guggenheim. Dan, it's a mixed bag this week. What you got? Definitely lots of options, though. I would say that Wu-Tang, An American Saga on Hulu is not really, unfortunately, as good as Showtime's documentary of Mikes and Men. But if, however, you are enjoying celebrating this anniversary year for the Wu, uh, it definitely has entertaining aspects to it. I checked out on Mayans a while ago. Uh, Greenleaf is a show, sadly, that I ran out of time for. So the other two big arrivals this week are shows about women with wings. Carnival (laughs) Row, I've been comparing it to kind of Netflix is bright. You might recall the Will Smith big blockbuster movie thing that dropped around Christmas or New Year's a couple of years ago and, and featured the immortal line, fairy lives don't matter, which was 
horrible and the entire movie was horrible. <laughs> I would compare it to Bright by way of maybe Penny Dreadful. It's very, very complicated mythology. It's also incredibly convoluted. I would say probably that Orlando Bloom and Cara Delevingne, neither one is necessarily a strong enough actor to be carrying it, but it is convoluted and mythological enough that I think it will have an audience that will like it and it's already been renewed so it doesn't matter. And they I heard that they Amazon spent something like a hundred million dollars on this show, which is insane. And some of it it's is like two on two different the, showrunners, multiple directors. I've lost count. Some of it is on the screen. There are some good special effects, very nice production design. It, it's way heavy on the allegory and way heavy on the exposition. I've watched four episodes. I think I'm probably done. On the other hand, I watched all 10 episodes of Netflix's The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance basically in two days. It is as good a mining of nostalgia as I think you're likely to find. It is visually stunning. It is it is so gorgeous. The puppetry is fantastic. If you watch it, be sure to also watch the 80 plus minute documentary that's accompanying it because simply watching the various artisans and technicians at work on this is is stunning it is amazing to watch i don't know that it necessarily needed to be 10 episodes of an hour apiece I, I think it is definitely excessive in a number of different ways but it is a really good story and i don't think the movie is all that good st a story the movie is really thin it has two very very dull lead characters and people give it a lot of latitude but those two gelflings in the in the movie are dull as heck the Gelflings in the TV show are actually much more interesting. They don't have the same dead, dead eyes as the Gelflings had in the movie. I think it is in many ways a large improvement over the movie and uh, maybe not for the smallest of kids, but I think it is a very entertaining watch. So that would be really my pick for the week. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Dan, rate us. Let's hear the spiel. <laughs> Do it. If you like Let's us, you can subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you really like us, please rate us. If you really, really like us, review us. It helps uh, build word of mouth. Speaking of word of mouth, come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from people. We're happy to, to chat and get your feedback there. And if you want to contribute anything for future mailbag columns, maybe next week with it being a holiday week, things will be a little slow and we might need some mailbag questions. You can email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. We're always happy to hear from you. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 